Good morning, church. Good morning. Good to see all of you here today. Um, to see this grace that has been already given to us, grace given to Hannah, grace given to all of us today, and through the mercy and the abundant kindness of Jesus Christ. Um, in this season of Lent, we've been going through the end of the book of Luke together as Jesus makes his own way towards Jerusalem, and we are making that same journey with him. Um, and along the way, we're seeing all these people that he's meeting and that this revolution that he is inciting, which is really in many ways a revolution of reversals, as we'll see today. So if you'll look with me um, in our bulletin, I, we have two passages today about Jesus and his interaction with children. So you little ones, I know there's a lot of you here today, you little ones, um, I want you especially to listen today because this is about you. This is proof to you, if adults have not told you this yet, that Jesus loves you deeply, and he wants you to come to him. So let's pray as we go to God's word. Father, we thank you that you are the God of small, broken things. And Lord, we are the small, broken ones here, even now, and we pray for help, because apart from you, we cannot understand your word, much less respond to it. So we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on me and all of us in our weakness, that we would not only understand your word today, but respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So hear God's word, friends, that is absolutely true, and it is given to each of you in love. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. There was a movie that came out in 1952 called Breaking the Sound Barrier, and it was a movie about a wealthy entrepreneur who was dead set on being the first man to fund the breaking of the sound barrier via flight. And so he uses money and he hired all these pilots and every single one of them uh, would fail. They would get up to that magic speed of 758 miles per hour and then the plane would begin to shake and the controls would stop working and the plane would disintegrate or crash and many pilots died. And so finally one pilot decides that he is gonna try something different. He, is, he is guesses something counterintuitive that perhaps when you hit the sound barrier, the controls begin to work backwards. And so he gets in his plane and he gets up in the air and he hits that speed of 758 miles an hour and the plane begins to shake. And so he puts his life in his own hands. He takes this enormous risk and he plunges the stick downward. And instead of that plane plummeting towards the earth, the nose lifts up and it skyrockets forward at supersonic speed. He was right. The controls worked backwards. Now, I actually asked an actual pilot about this. Turns out this is total fiction. Um, <laughs> but 
it, it's funny because it was, this movie was so popular in the 50s that people assumed that it was true. In fact, one woman once went up to Chuck Yeager, the man who actually did, was the first man who, to break the sound barrier, and she said, is it true? Did, did, you, did the controls go in reverse and that's how you did it? And he said, no ma'am, if I did that, I'd be dead. Uh, and so it's fiction, but it makes for a great sermon illustration, so we're, we're thankful. The revolution that Jesus is bringing about in the world, as hopefully, if you've been here with us, we've seen week by week, is in many ways a revolution of reversals. It's a revolution of reversals. It's like Jesus is taking the controls of the world and making them work in reverse. So in Jesus' kingdom, what's up is suddenly down, and what's down is suddenly up. What's out is now in, and what's in is now out. What's high is now low, and what's low is now high. It is a revolution of reversals, and we've seen this in almost every encounter Jesus has, whether it's with the leper, or with the prostitute, or with the sinner, or the tax collector, but there is hardly any place we see this great reversal anywhere better than his interaction with little ones, with children. And so what we're going to see today are these two simple things in these passages. That first, to follow Jesus is to receive the small. And then second, to follow Jesus is to become the small. It is to receive the small and to become the small. So let's first look at how to follow Jesus is to receive the small. When we modern people hear these stories about Jesus caring for babies and children, it sounds so sweet to us. We have this picture of you know, loving Jesus with his flowing hair, picking up these little children, and it sounds so sweet and sentimental. But in reality, in the ancient world, no one would have experienced it that way. They had a very different view of children. In fact, um, one commentator that I read said this, societies with high infant mortality rates and a high demand for human labor were not sentimental about children. So in other words, no baby Einstein videos, um, no exorcisers, no nightlights, no plush toys. In the ancient culture, children were considered, honestly, they were considered worthless, disposable. The, the, it, children were not seen to have any intrinsic value. Infanticide, which, where you put a baby out uh, to be killed, and child abandonment were legal, especially for little baby girls. Um, the chance of a child reaching adulthood was very small. Um, the only value children had in the ancient world were as potential as a future economic contributor to business or as a progenitor of some kind. So, so when you see the disciples rebuking the parents for bringing their kids, they're not being mean. They are just operating according to the standard social norms of the day. They're just saying, no, look guys, Jesus needs time for the people at the top. He needs time for the important people. There, were, there was a social pyramid at the time. And in that pyramid, uh, men were at the top. They were the most important. And then the women. Uh, and then the, the slaves, which really were indentured servants, not like uh, enslaved ch uh, chattel slavery, the way that we understand it. And then at the very bottom were children because they could not make any sort of economic contribution to society. And then even outside the social pyramid were the permanently unclean, those who were uh, disabled or the lepers of any kind. They weren't even in the social pyramid. And so the disciples are just operating according to the standards of the social pyramid at the time. And so what Jesus is doing is so shocking to them because he says, look at this pyramid. He says, let the little children come to me for to them belongs the kingdom. He is doing something remarkable. Watch this. He is turning the pyramid on his head. He is t he's doing a radical value transposition. 
He is turning the social pyramid upside down and saying, those who are of little importance in society, the socially marginalized, the overlooked, the disenfranchised, the dispossessed, these are the ones who are most highly valued in the kingdom of God. And, and everybody was shocked. No one had ever seen or heard anybody do something like this. Now, the disciples, if these guys were really good Jewish boys, they should have known their Bibles. They should have known that the God of the Bible is a God who stands on the side of the weak. The Old Testament constantly speaks of the God of Israel as the one who sides with the vulnerable. Um, the theologian Vinoth Ramachandra points out that in nearly all the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods uh, was mediated through the elites, the powerful, the strong of society. So if you came against, if you opposed the powerful, you were opposing the gods. But Vinoth Ramachandra points out that the God of the Bible is the opposite because this God over and over again identifies himself not with the powerful, but with the weak. God says, if you go against the powerless, you go against me. Specifically, the Old Testament speaks frequently of the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the aliens, the widows, the orphans, the poor. God says, I'm with them. I'm with these guys. And if you come against them, you come against me, and I'm coming after you. That's this God. And so the disciples, if they knew their Old Testaments, they should not have been surprised when they see this man they know and believe to be the Messiah aligning himself with the weak of the earth. They should not have been surprised when they saw Jesus touching the lepers who no one else would touch. They shouldn't have been surprised when they saw Jesus rallying around the widows or the disabled or the unclean. They should not have been surprised when they see Jesus calling the little children up into his lap because this is the God of Israel now in the flesh. And this is a God who sides with the small. Jesus is building an army. Like Percy said last week, and it is a shocking army. It is an army in which the soldiers are all those who are forgotten in the world, the lepers, the widows, the children, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, 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 those that the world has forgotten. These are the highly valued in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, what does this mean for us? I just want to make two applications for us. First, one that relates to our internal life as a church, and then second, that relates to our external witness to the world. Okay, first, as it relates to our internal life, I want to say this to you, third family, that when it comes to our internal church life, we will seek to prioritize the vulnerable among us, especially the children. Let me just explain a bit about how we, our sort of philosophy of children's ministry here at third. We don't, I don't talk about this much at all in the pulpit, but so I just thought this was a good opportunity for me to explain how we think about children's ministry here. You know, thankfully, our American culture has a higher view of children than the ancient world does, but in the church, we can sometimes do subtle things to communicate that the real work that God wants to do around here is with the big people, the people who are over, you know, four foot eight. Um, and so, forgive me if you're an adult and you're under four foot eight. Um, so sometimes what, sometimes what the church does is they, you know, we create these amazing children's programs that are just like epic. And we, we, sometimes churches even build these amazing children's facilities that just have those most amazing things going on in there. Like every kid in 25-mile radius wants to get into that place. Now, why do we do this? Well, let's be honest. We do this so we can stick the kids in there so they won't bother us. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not a whole lot. You know, the, we, we sort of operate out of a mindset that the real work that God wants to do is with the adults. 
And so we have this stuff for the kids so that we adults can have nice, undistracted worship and programming without interruption. Now, of course, there are times when we will have adult-specific activities. We will, uh, young, young parents in here, please, I am not saying we're going to cancel all child care at the church. That's not, not what I'm saying. Breathe a sigh of relief. I feel your pain. I'm a young parent myself. But here's what I'm saying, is that we want to work hard here to create environments where children are welcomed into the very heart of things. We are never going to create an amazing children's ministry center because we believe that the heart of every child's formation is in two places. First of all, in your home, and secondly, here in corporate worship. And, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is, like, even if you have a choice, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you're a parent, but if you have a choice between taking your kid, uh, putting your kid in Sunday school or coming to worship or bringing your kid with you to worship, always choose bringing them to worship. Because what happens when we're here as we move through the liturgy and as we hear these rhythms of the call to worship, the confession and the response and the prayer, and we hear the word of God and we sing, these rhythms of the gospel begin to sink into the child's life. We're, we're working on these, these groups called parish groups, which are communities in which children are full-fledged members and have a part. We have something called Faith Milestones here, which is a very carefully thought out approach of how our children will grow up knowing Jesus and following him. So we prioritize the inclusion of the vulnerable, whether it be children, whether it be the disabled or the mentally ill or the outsider, the elderly. You know, the American evangelical church, unfortunately, sometimes worships at the, at the altar of youth culture. And so we always, we're, we're so wanting to attract the young people that we put the, the strongest, the fittest, the sveltest, the handsomest, you know, up in the front to hopefully attract the young. But the community of Jesus does not do that. We are a place of inclusion for all. And we especially seek a place of hospitality for the most vulnerable members. I love this picture. Um, this is a picture of the Christian Arabic church during communion. And this is what happens every week. Uh, I mean, every time they celebrate communion, you can see the children are just clamoring around the table. It is a chaotic mess. I've, I've been there to witness it. But it is beautiful because it is, a, it is an emblem that Jesus welcomes children into the very heart of things. And so we want to be like that as a church, okay? So our internal life. Secondly, our external witness. When it comes to our external witness, we will measure our faithfulness by how well the most vulnerable members of society are cared for. Let me say that again. We will measure our faithfulness and our witness by how well the most vulnerable members of society are cared for. I was talking to my friend Justin early a couple weeks ago, and he said something that I asked that I could share with you. He said this, it is easy sometimes, especially when we stay in our suburban enclaves, to believe the American myth that this is a land of prosperity for everyone and that everyone's flourishing. And friends, that is a lie. In reality, these are the facts. We have thousands of kids in the foster system who will never be adopted. We have a 50-year-old institutionalization of abortion of the unborn. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness and poverty that is held together by desperate single mothers. We have millions of immigrants and refugees among us and millions more waiting at the doors in what many say is the greatest, largest refugee crisis of all time. We have third world style poverty right here in America. Even in Richmond, the East End is one of the highest concentration of poverty in America. We have the largest prison population in America in the world. And the great overwhelming number of those are young African-American men who even getting out will never work and will probably find themselves back there again. 
We have a crisis of the elderly. We have a crisis of the mentally ill who have no place to go or often sent to jail or stuck in homes. And the common thread of all of these people, my friends, is that they are beautiful image bearers who cannot speak for themselves. They are the small ones. And, and the reality of this is so great and so overwhelming that it often paralyzes us and makes us feel like we can do nothing. But here's what we can do. First of all, what we can do is we can realize that it's not up to us to fix it. That God is the God who hears the cry of every vulnerable one and no drop of innocent blood will fall without God one day redeeming it when he makes all things new. So that is the first thing to realize that ultimately you're not, it's not your job to fix it. And then once you realize that and put your hope in the God of the vulnerable, then you can take a very, any very small act of faithfulness, as Jesus said, to just give a cup of cold water to a kid. It might be just starting with refusing to accept the myth of universal prosperity and learning about this subterranean layer of brokenness in our land. It could mean rearranging your life so that you are closer in touch with the vulnerable. Maybe taking a new route to work that puts you through a neighborhood that you don't want to go to. Maybe it means shopping in places that expose you to people that you don't normally see. Maybe it means involving yourselves in a school or a neighborhood or a gym or some institution that brings you close to those who are most broken. Maybe it means entwining your life with a vulnerable person or family, like getting involved in our orphan care group or Jobs for Life or, or, or ESL or one of our mission partners locally or internationally. What would happen, just dream with me for a second, what would happen if our church and Christians rose up and were known as those who stood for the most vulnerable and marginalized in society? And I mean, we use that plumb line for all of them, both the unborn and the single mother the immigrant and the prisoner, the mentally ill and the impoverished, the minority and the refugee, what would happen? And friends, I want you to understand, I'm not being political. In fact, if we truly did this, if we made standing with the vulnerable as the plumb line for Christian faithfulness, it would put us out of order with both political parties. There would be no way that we could be categorized as conservative, progressive, or whatever, because we don't follow a platform or a party. We follow a king, and that king always stands with the small period. That is his platform. And so Jesus puts everything in reverse, my friends. He puts everything in reverse. If you become a Christian and you come under the revolution of the king, that means your life begins to work with that same reversal of values as well. That you begin to, to see power differently, recognition, status, privilege, beauty, accomplishment differently. You begin to see people that you did not previously see. You begin to experience this utter reversal of values in your own life. Would that not be beautiful if the church of our land was known for that? To follow Jesus is to receive the small. Because in his kingdom, the small are great. But second, we see is that to follow Jesus is to become the small. Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 17, that whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Well, what in the world does that mean? Now, this is a metaphor. Let me just say, and I do apologize to the children in the house, that there are, of course, a lot of ways that children are that adults shouldn't be. You know, drooling or high-pitched noises, things like that. Um, Jesus does not say... Be spiritually childish. He says be spiritually childlike. What does that mean? Well, children are held up by examples as Jesus, not because of their virtues, because children are neither more nor less virtuous than adults. 
they are held up by Jesus because of their deficits, because of their helplessness, because of their need. Is there any image of dependence more powerful than a little child? Sometimes it's very sweet, daddy, daddy, I need you. Sometimes it's kind of annoying, dad, 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 dad. But the universal characteristic of all children is need, need. They cannot fend for themselves. They cannot make dinner for themselves. They cannot pay their bills. They cannot do life on their own. They cannot drive themselves to school. And Jesus says, I want you, big people, to be like that. The very thing that we are trained so long to resist, helplessness and need, is the very thing that God most wants to cultivate in us. The secret to spiritual greatness is childlike dependence. Two applications here. First, about becoming a Christian and then living as one. First, to become a Christian, we've seen this week to week, especially with the rich young ruler that comes right after this story. We noted how striking it was, right, that this rich young ruler who has everything has the one thing, is missing the one thing that he needed to get into the kingdom, which is nothing. Nothing was the one thing he didn't have. And yet these little children who have nothing, Jesus says, has everything they need to be full-fledged members of his kingdom. So what Jesus is communicating to you is that to become a Christian means to come empty, to come helpless, to come ready to receive Jesus and his grace as the thing that you most need. The way to get into Jesus' kingdom is the way of grace. Nothing plus grace equals everything. That's kingdom math. I don't know how it works, but it does. Nothing plus grace equals everything. I will never forget a young man um, who started coming to Easton Fellowship when I was a pastor there. And he came week by week by week. He had never been to a church his whole life. And he came up to me one time and he said, I, you know, I've been doing this and I think I, think I want to become a Christian. What do I do? And I said, I said well, you just, you just ask God. You say, God, I'm a sinner and I, and, I, and, I, and I need your grace and I want to follow Jesus. And he said, well, I've never prayed before. What do I do? And I said, well, let's just sit down together and you talk to God just like you're talking to a person. And I will never forget his prayer. Um, I wish I would have written it down because it was just so beautiful. But it kind of went something like this. Hey, God, it's Jason. Um, I've never talked to you before, but now I know that you love me, and I know that Jesus died to forgive me, and man, I need that so much because I've lived a messed up life, so I'll take that. Okay, cool, bye. <laughs> I remember literally he said bye. <laughs> I tried not to laugh because I didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. Um, but it was just so beautiful. It was so childlike. And I think sometimes with all of our religion and all of our morality and all of the ways that we are so put together, we forget that this is how God wants us to come to him. Children don't come with pretensions. Children don't come negotiating. Well, sometimes they do. <laughs> but children, children don't come justifying themselves. They just come. They come as they are. And that's what it means to become a Christian. And for those of you who maybe aren't Christians, I want you to realize this, is that becoming a Christian in some ways might be a whole lot easier and a whole lot harder than you ever thought. But it's a whole lot easier because truly you need nothing. That's what Jesus asked for, nothing. That's what it means to become a Christian. And that, but, but secondly, it means it's very hard because it means you have to own the fact that you have nothing. And big people don't want to do that. Big people don't want to say, Jesus, 
I can't live the life that you wanted me to live, and so I need you to live it for me. I need you to die for me. I need you to rise for me. I need you to give me the kind of righteousness that I cannot give to myself. I need that from you. Have you done that? I pray that some of you would today. Second, though, living as a Christian, I think we also need to hear this, those of us who've been Christians many times, I mean, for many years. Uh, Paul Miller does this sometimes in his workshops. He puts this, this saying up on a screen. He says, I want you to analyze the young man who said this. I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what I see my dad doing. And people jump in as armchair psychologists. People say, oh, this is clearly a very weak young man. He's helpless. He suffers from codependency. Um, he needs some self-differentiation from his father. Obviously, he needs some serious therapy. And then Paul Miller then says, actually, these are the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Jesus commends childlike dependence because he models it. I mean, ironically, it took God in the flesh to model to humans how not to be God and how to live like a dependent child instead. Is that not ironic? Jesus is the most dependent human being that ever lived. And this is so un-American. We celebrate independence and self-sufficiency and strength. That's what it means to be mature, right? But in Jesus' kingdom, to be mature means to be like a child. And that means to live your everyday life in the posture of childlike dependence, coming to the Father for everything again and again. My friend Greg, when he was about eight years old, he was out in the backyard playing, and he decided he wanted to try to jump over the picket fence in his backyard. And so he started running, and he took this running jump, and he got over the fence, but he didn't clear it enough. And so he came, he came down, and it, the, the fence, the picket went right up his shorts and his shirt, scraped all the skin off his back, and he was just hanging there, suspended on the fence. And he's flailing his arms and his legs, screaming for his mama. She can't hear him. And so finally he figures out, I just need to get out of these clothes. And so he starts wriggling out of his clothes. And so he gets out of his clothes, and then he's crying, and he's dirty, and he's bloody, and he's naked. <laughs> and he runs into his house, and there is his mama. Now, what do you suppose she said to him? <laughs> After she got over the initial heart attack, she said, get back outside and get your clothes, boy. How dare you come in here naked and dirty and bloody? No, she just opened her arms. and She said, come here, baby. And Jesus says, that's you. Jesus says, that's you, seriously. Little children come as they are. They don't, they don't hide their messes. They don't cover over their selfishness. They don't try to fix themselves up before they approach us. Jesus is saying to be in relationship with God means to not come as you should be, but to come as you are. Come messy, come empty. Come naked, come dirty, come stinky, come real. Instead of being stuck by who you are, try this, begin with who you are. Because that's the kid that Jesus loves. You're his kid and he loves you. Some of you think about God in exactly the opposite way. You see your failures, you see your messes, you see this, the, the stuff that you're ashamed of in your life and it drives you away from God. Or you feel like you can't come to him until you pull yourself together, until you just put off prayer, you put off communion with him, you put off having any sort of real relationship with him. But see, that's what adults do. Adults are the, the dummies who try to fix themselves up. It's little ones that get it. Jesus says, be like these kids. Let your mess drive you to the Father. 
I want you to know, friends, I want you to hear me right now, that God knows what every single person in this room needs right now. Every single one of you. He knows that some of you are frightened. He knows that some of you are scared about your kids. He knows that some of you are frightened about your parents. He knows that some of you are overwhelmed. He knows that some some of you are lonely. He knows that some of you are ashamed. He knows that some of you are numb and cynical and angry. He knows all of this, and he wants us all to come to him exactly as we are right now with all of our varied needs, and he wants to embrace you and fill you with good things because he is your father. That is what he wants to do. And that is the secret. That's the secret to salvation. That is the secret to the spiritual life, that the secret of spiritual greatness is childlike dependence. And and if if you do this, if you are sitting in a meeting and you have no clue and you don't know what you're doing, and you feel afraid or overwhelmed, try this, cry out to your father. Help me, oh God. If you're trying to parent your kid, and you feel totally out of control, and you don't know what to say, and you don't even know how to be a dad, cry out to your father. Ask him for mercy. If someone says something, and it triggers shame, or jealousy, or envy, or fear, or whatever it might be, try this, try crying out to your father. Try living every day in your everyday ordinary life as a little child dependent on your father. And that will make you into a person of spiritual greatness. The secret of spiritual greatness is childlike dependence as we live in a prayerful, ongoing relationship with him. So let me just sum up. Jesus is taking the controls of the world and he's thrusting everything in reverse. And the kingdom, the small are great and the great are small. And so now to follow Jesus means at least these two things. To follow Jesus is to receive the small, to have the same passion for the vulnerable, as Jesus did himself, and second, to follow Jesus is to become the small, to become like a child and to get in touch every day with your dependence and need. And here's the beautiful thing. When you start doing number two, when you start getting in touch with your everyday need, you will naturally begin doing number one. In fact, I would say, if you try to kind of help the needy uh, before you recognize you yourself are the needy, then you will only do harm. You will only have this this attitude of superiority and paternalism for the poor and the weak of the earth. But if you do number two, and you get in touch with your childlike need and weakness and dependence every day, and you cry out continuously for Jesus and his mercy, when you see someone who is weak or in need of the earth, you will come alongside as a fellow beggar helping another beggar where to find bread. It is the army of the vulnerable. That is the revolutionary army that Jesus is creating. And friends, we have a king the one through whom the universe was made became a single tiny cell in a, in a woman's body. We have a king who lived a life of obscurity and poverty. We have a king whose ministry was marked by rejection and suffering. We have a king who died the shameful death of a scorned criminal of the state on the shameful cross. What a weak, small life. That's our king. And yet, through this small life, through this wretched death and through this triumphant resurrection that we will celebrate in three weeks this little life through him god has redeemed all things all things the great became small so that now us little ones can become great will you look to this king friends will you look to him every day let's pray We do pray, Father, that you would make us like little children 
and that you would keep us in that posture, that we would look to you knowing that you are the Father, that because of Jesus and his death gives us access to you as Abba Father. And we cry out to you every day, relying on you, and then make us to be warriors for the vulnerable of the earth. Looking to the God who sides with the small. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.